Morning, church. So Philippians 3, 12 through 21. Straining toward the goal. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, if, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join in me in imitating and keeping our eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I, am often, I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We will transform, or he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. You guys doing well? Could someone tell me what rain is? Anybody? What's the definition of rain? I haven't seen that in a long time. I want more rain. And so uh, good to have you with us. Welcome to those that are on YouTube Live this morning joining us and those that will be joining us later on today and throughout this week. And good to have you with us. Rejoice in the Lord always is our current teaching series, a study in Philippians. Joy in Perseverance is the title of this weekend's message, Joy in Perseverance. How many could use some joy in your perseverance? (laughs) I think we all could. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 21 is our text. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Let me start with a story. It's been a number of years ago now. I was a participant at the Firebird Lake Sprint Triathlon. It was a six-mile run, half-mile swim, and a 13-mile bike ride. And I started off with the run, and it was one of the best mile times uh, that I ever ran. I mean, I ran hard. It was good. I felt good. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to be strong in this race. And uh, the only problem was that I ran too hard in that first leg of the race. And when I jumped into the water, I could not catch my breath And so I couldn't do the freestyle like you're supposed to for that half mile. I did the, what is this called? The dog paddle. (laughs) Just like that. And I had probably hundreds of people swim over the top of me, nearly drowning me. It was all I could do to get out of the water. By the time I dragged myself out of the water, my wife, who was waiting for me, already had my life insurance policy money spent. That's, that's a true story, okay? And so I got on the 13-mile bike ride and did not finish strong, to say the least. 
I really struggled throughout that race, wanted to tap out many times. I was nauseated as I was on the bike, really sick to my stomach. But I finished, didn't finish strong, but I persevered to the end. And it's not the way you want to run the race of life. You need to pace yourself. You want to finish strong. And let me ask you this. Have you felt like giving up lately? Have you felt like maybe giving up physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, financially? Take a look at your notes. Perseverance is essential for facing life's challenges. If you're going to face life challenges, you need to have perseverance. It is much easier to quit than to persevere, but in the long run, the cost of quitting are much higher than the cost to persevere. Perseverance is, is about finishing strong. And in this text, Paul gives us a formula for finishing strong. You can see it right there. It's part of really our outline of this, uh, and you can see on your sermon notes, a holy discontent plus holy ambition equals a holy life that finishes strong. Now what you'll find is that this is a more in-depth look at the second G of being a fully devoted follower of Christ. That's what, why we exist as a church. We want to help people, unchurched people, become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Talked about it two weeks ago, and we do that through the 5G process by being a genuine Christian, growing Christian, giving Christian, going Christian, all for God's glory. Last weekend, uh, we looked in more depth at this genuine Christian, the heart of a genuine Christian, and now we really look at this idea of being a growing Christian. This is going to really give us the motivation of someone that's really, truly growing in Christ. And so we're talking about being a growing Christian, and, and this is the topic of sanctification or holiness or wholeness. And so sanctification is, is becoming practically what you already are positionally in Christ. And so that's where we're headed. Let's start with the first one there. Holy discontent based on verses 12 through 13. Here's your first fill in the blank. Holy discontent starts with a recognition that you are not where you ought to be. You are not where you ought to be. Now see if you can hear that in this text, verse 12a. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Verse 13a, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So let me start by saying this, that if you don't recognize that you are not where you want to be, then you are self-deceived. Sorry. Yeah, you're out of touch with reality. And in fact, it tells us that in 1 John 1, 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So there should be something within your heart that says, you know what, I'm, why am I still struggling with this or what's going on here or I'm not where I, I ought to be. That, that's, that's normal, healthy Christianity. And so because we're all in that category, then that means the church should be made up of people that are not stone throwers. You know what I mean by that? When Jesus said to the, to the woman that was caught in adultery, he said to those that were accusing her, he said, he is without sin, throw the first stone. That's all of us. So church, when you come to church, it should be the safest place ever to say, hey, I haven't arrived. I don't have it all together. I struggle in my life. 
so I need help. And they'll say, join the party, because that's true of all of us. And that's what he's saying here. Now, what's fascinating about this is that the Apostle Paul is saying this 30 years after his conversion. And what he's teaching us here is that perfection in this life is a goal, but it's not an achievement, regardless of what you might hear by guys that are out there teaching this idea that you can have perfection this side of eternity. That is not true. There's actually some false teaching out there that says that. And so a holy discontent is at the root of our greatest achievements so here, here's, before we move on to the next point, this is what you need to keep in mind. It's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay there, okay? Do you get that? Okay, so, so, so it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. We want to grow. We want to be growing Christians. Here's the next thought of holy discontent being... Uh, having this holy discontentment and it's is knowing that the one thing above anything I should be pursuing is ultimate satisfaction in Christ. Did you notice that in verse 13? He says, but one thing I do. He didn't say 10 things I do, but one thing I do. And, and the one thing that he does, he, he actually mentions it there in verses 10 through 11. Remember what we studied last week? So he said this, He said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering and to to become like him in his death so that I may by all means attain to the resurrection of the dead. It's all about Christ. It's all about our satisfaction in Christ in every aspect of life. That's the one thing that he is pursuing. And in fact, that one thing is what is known as Christian hedonism. So, so it is knowing, so holy discontent is knowing that the one thing above anything I should be pursuing is ultimate satisfaction in Christ, and that's Christian hedonism. You guys know what hedonism is, don't you? I mean, it's all around us, but pleasure is your God. That's hedonism. So Christian hedonism is God. <laughs> God is your pleasure. That's the essence of Christian life. You find amazing pleasure in God beyond anything else. And so Christian hedonism is both a freeing and frustrating doctrine. It is freeing because it reinforces our internal desire to be happy. And the Bible basically says over and over again, you'll really only be truly, truly, deeply, eternally happy in God. Not in something created, but in the creator. But it's also frustrating because there is an all-out war against our ultimate satisfaction in Christ. Did you know that? It's called sin, the world, and the devil, or self, society, and Satan. You can read more about that in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But this is what you've got to keep in mind as it relates to this, this one thing of ultimate satisfaction in Christ. Indifference to growing in my ultimate satisfaction in Christ is indifference to the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And so um, you need to have that, that passion. You need to pursue that one thing. That's the essence of the Christian life. Now, the question is, do I find that one thing any other place in Scripture that Paul is mentioning here? Yeah, it's, it's all through Scripture. Let me give you some examples. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Mary and Martha when they invited Jesus over to their house and, and so it's found in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. 
It cracks me up every time I read this story because I, I certainly can relate to what's going on here, and I'm sure that you probably can too. But here Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, hanging on to every word that he says. What is Martha doing? She is running crazy. I mean, just running here and there and trying to serve. And in fact, this is what it says, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, listen to the contradiction. So she's going to start bossing the Lord around right here, okay? That's a major contradiction. And so you don't want to be bossing Jesus around and start off by calling him Lord, okay? Because Lord means, that no, he's, he's the one that calls the shots, But there's a contradiction. She says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? (laughs) That's good. I mean, it's just just crazy. You don't care about me, do you? And look what she's doing. And, uh, And tell her to help me. Listen to the Lord's words to her, just very sweet. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things. I'll just stop there just for a minute. So there are a lot of Marthas here in the house this morning, okay? You can, if you're a guy, you can be a Martha too, okay? So there are guy Marthas and girl Marthas, okay? And so you're anxious and troubled about many things. You're anxious and troubled about many things. Are you anxious and troubled about many things? Then you're... you're in the place of Martha as opposed to Mary. And this is, he goes on, he says, but one thing is necessary. There's the one thing. Just as Paul was saying, one thing I do, he says, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. One thing, one thing, sitting at Jesus' feet and hanging on to every word that he speaks. One thing. Here's another example of that one thing. Uh, in Psalm 27, really one of my favorite psalms, and the gals are memorizing the first verse, first verse of this psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And what he's talking about here is, uh, this is David, and he's talking about, he runs the full gamut of problems that we could face, all the way from hundreds of thousands of enemies surrounding him to even on the home front, even if his own family betrays him and turns against him. He says, even if all of those things are true, one thing I ask, that's verse 27, 4, one thing I ask, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or meditate in his temple. He's just saying, man, if I just have this one thing, I can face anything, and that's seeing the beauty and the glory of God. Another example of this would be Matthew 6.33. Maybe you're familiar with this and you've memorized this verse. Seek first the kingdom of God and his what? Righteousness and what? What will happen? All things will be added unto you. So what he's talking about there in the context is that we tend to be uh, distracted by, as, as as with Martha here, anxious and troubled about many things. That's the... That's the idea of this. And yet Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, no, seek, seek this one thing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be taken care of. Trust him. Look to him. Focus on him. 
And so that's, uh, that's the second thought. Holy discontent starts with a recognition I'm not where I ought to be. It's knowing the one thing above anything I should be pursuing is ultimate satisfaction in Christ. And now we come to this next one. We're going to spend a little more time on this one because it's an important one. And this is what keeps us from really finding our deepest satisfaction in Christ. So holy discontent is about not letting a closet full of regrets keep you from finding your ultimate satisfaction in Christ. Closet full of regrets. So he says in verse 13, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what is ahead. So what does that mean, forgetting what is behind? Well, the Greek here doesn't mean losing your memory or a failure to recall. It's it actually means to not let your past control you. Or it also means don't let your past influence your present. This is what he's saying. Let me give you an example of that. In uh, Hebrews 8.12, God says, I will remember their sins no more. It's, a, it's the same idea here. And so it doesn't mean that God can't recall your sins or their sins, but their past sins no longer influence his relating to them in the present. That's what he's talking about here. He does not hold their sins against them. By the way, that's what we should be doing with one another, not holding our sins against each other, no stone throwers, and it's called forgiveness. If forgiveness... Forgiveness should be really part of church life and among Christians, more than anything else. And so what's fascinating about this text is that Paul must have have really enjoyed watching track and field of his day because he uses running many times in his writings as an analogy for the Christian life. And it's almost like he's saying, hey, you can't run effectively into the future if you're constantly looking back. Imagine a runner. Most of those runners, they don't look sideways. They don't even look back. They better not because they're going to fall or they're gonna get, it's going to slow them down. They're going to slow their momentum down. And that's, in essence, what he's saying. Quit looking back. Look ahead to where you're going. Another analogy here that's always helped me is imagine, imagine you spend most of your time while you're driving looking in your rearview mirror as opposed to looking out the front windshield where you're going. You're going to run into somebody. That's what's going to happen. And so, you, yeah, you, you might glance in your rearview mirror, but, man, you've got to stay focused on that front windshield and what's going on ahead of you. And so what we've got to do is we've got to, at some point in our life, we've got to stop nursing, cursing, and rehearsing our past and move on beyond our past and that's what he's saying here. So let me give you some thoughts here. These are on your notes. So the past can't really affect us but our present feelings about the past can. It's called baggage. So think about the logic of that. Your past can't hurt you. It's in the past but it's your feelings about the past that continue to haunt you and harass you and hassle you. So you've got to work through those feelings Here's the next point in your notes. Baggage is both the unresolved sins I have committed and the sins committed against me. That's why there's a place in 
the Lord's Prayer, that we should be praying daily, regularly, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those that have sinned against us. I still really like what the little girl, as she was learning to recite the Lord's Prayer, her mom overheard her say, at this point, forgive us of our trash baskets as we forgive those that put trash in our baskets. That's right. We've got trash in our baskets, so we put in there. So he's got to, we got to have Christ help us to get rid of that, give it over to him. But there's also trash in our baskets because other people have put that in our lives. So we've got to be able to take out the trash. We've got to deal with it. We've got to work through it. So, so baggage is both the unresolved sins I have committed and the sins committed against me. Here's the next one. The key is receiving and giving God's forgiveness of me. Maybe you're familiar with the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's found in Matthew 18. It's a bit of a gut punch, really, because here this guy received forgiveness from the king, and then he went out and found a a friend that uh, owed him, and he wrung his neck to try to get the little bit as opposed to the lot that that he had been forgiven by the king. And so the king basically said, and it's, a, it's a parable, it's helping us to understand what forgive, unforgiveness does and bitterness does. It poisons us, it entraps us, it enslaves us, it tortures us is literally what it says. You'll have the torture in your life the rest of your life because you have unforgiveness and bitterness. And one of the, one of the ways that I've been able to realize in my own life is I've, as I've had to forgive others of their sins against me, is that to the degree that I understand how much he has forgiven me is to the degree that I'm able to forgive others. And the only reason why I'm not able to forgive others is because I'm not living in the reality of how much he's forgiven me because what he's forgiven me is much more than I will ever have to forgive anyone else. And so that's important to keep that in mind and that's where the healing is found. So to the degree that I understand his forgiveness of me is to the degree that I'll be able to forgive others and to the degree that I'm able to forgive others is to the degree that I'm not gonna be tortured the rest of my life with bitterness and unforgiveness. I will be set free. And so that's, that's part of it. When we bury our sins and the sins committed against us, it is always buried alive and will accumulate over time and wreak havoc in our lives and in the lives of others. Now, this is what I've seen in uh, many years of ministry is that you can be so inundated by past hurts that it renders you vulnerable and incapable of responding appropriately to present hurts, leaving you really with an overwhelming sense of hopelessness. Almost like going out to the ocean and you stood out on the waves and the waves are coming in really strong and one wave hits you and then the second one hits you before you know it, knocks you down, the next wave buries you and then you almost feel like you're going to be drug out to the ocean and drowned. That's how hurts in your life can, can take hold of your life. They can almost be overwhelming. They can be relentless. They can come at you at, at such a degree and if you don't process them, and oftentimes you can't even, you don't even have the time to be able to process all of that stuff that's hitting you. And so you need to be able to take that time and maybe even get counseling so that you can work through that or go through mending the soul, what we offer here, or celebrate recovery or any number of things or at least be a part of a small group of people that are helping you to navigate that and work through that and find healing in your heart. So how do I know if I haven't resolved my past hurts? What would you think? What would be some indicators in your life? It's, 
your overreaction or underreaction to present problems can be caused by unresolved past hurts and sins. It's called the sunburn analogy. There's a guy that came into the second service last, uh, last weekend and, uh, and I, I grabbed a hold of him, we hugged and uh, he had a sunburn on his back. So you have a sunburn and you got it covered up, someone comes up and hugs you or pats you on the back to show love and so the tendency is to kind of, ah, and you're going, what? I was trying to love you. That's overreaction because they, they have a sunburn. You can have a sunburn because the past hurts because they're unresolved. And so when someone mentions a, someone's name or an event or certain circumstances, and when you find yourself overreacting, overreacting would be kind of blowing up. Underreacting would be giving up. You just, you just threw in the towel. I don't even want to hear it. I don't want to talk about it. It's over. And so that can happen in, in your life. That's how you know. Anytime you find yourself overreacting to life circumstances, it's because those, those circumstances leading up to that, you, you're, not re, you're not processing them appropriately. You're not taking them to the cross. You're letting them stockpile, and that's where you have that f- blow up or give up. This is what I've also found is that unsafe people often have a strategy to get you upset and out of control. They'll work you, and they'll work on you with those past hurts. And so what you have to do is you have to learn to respond, not react. I'm still working on that one in my own life. So how do you know you've really worked through those past hurts? Here's the next thought. My past no longer has a hold on me when I can recall it giving testimony of God's grace without reliving it. And so I can recall it, but I don't relive relive it, and and I'm, I'm able to give testimony of God's grace, healing grace. And that has to do with not only the sins we've committed, but the sins committed against us. Let's take, for instance, the sins we've committed. If you were to look at the life of Peter, I love Peter. In the, uh, I mean, he's just, he's such a, he's a great guy, and yet he's so messed up, man. I mean, he really is, and, and, and so Jesus is arrested, and he's hauled off. He's going to be hanging on the cross soon, so Peter follows at a distance, and while he's in the courtyard warming by the fire, three different times, people ask him, hey, aren't you one of his followers? He goes, no, no, I'm not. He denies Christ three times, third time, the rooster crows, and at that moment, it tells us in Luke 22, that Jesus looks over at him, and and they catch each other's eyes, and Peter is filled with overwhelming guilt and shame, and says that he runs off and weeps bitterly. Well, that pretty much disqualifies him from ministry. Wait a minute. Did that disqualify him from ministry? He became one of the greatest leaders of that early church. Why is that? Because in John 21, and it actually began before that, he repents and believes in Jesus. He came back to Christ with his sin and was redeemed and restored And so if you think because of your past you are disqualified from ministry, think again. Take it to the cross. God will redeem you. He will restore you. That's true. If it's true of Peter, it's true of us. Let me give you an example of sins committed against us. You guys are familiar with uh, 
With Joseph in the Old Testament, his brothers, his 11 brothers, stripped him of his clothes, threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery. And so Joseph went from pit to prison to palace, second in command through the providential hand of God. Famine hits the land, and guess who shows up to the to the court there and to where uh, Joseph lived and second in command of all of Egypt. His knucklehead brothers, because they're starving. And so they come into the court. Joseph recognizes them. He has them, uh, he has them tied up, beaten, and thrown in prison. He, he, is not how the story goes? That's what I would have done, okay? I would have done that. But he doesn't do that. And in fact, it's a a very profound statement that he makes to them as he's looking into the eyes of his perpetrators. It's called, it's uh, Genesis 50-20. I always call it the 50-20 perspective. He looks in the eyes of his perpetrators and he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. All the hurts you've ever gone through, God will recycle those and use those in your life to bring healing to others. That's what that 50-20 perspective is. You, you bring it to Christ. Bring it to the cross. He's healing. He's a healing Savior. He loves us. He loves you. And so you got to kind of work through that. you got to process it. you got to take it to the cross. Sins you've committed, sins committed against you. So that's, that, that's really that holy discontent. You recognize you're not where you ought to be. The one thing is ultimate satisfaction in him, and then you've got to get rid of that closet full of regrets and move on. And so now we move to holy, from holy discontent to holy ambition. Listen to what he says here. You can see this holy ambition in Paul. He says, I press on to make it my own. Verse 13, straining forward to what is ahead. Verse 14, I press on. He uses that same phrase again. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the word press on is an interesting word. The Greek, it is the same word in verse six. Remember when in chapter 3, verse 6, where he's kind of listing his accomplishments, his works righteousness. In part of that list, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. So that I press on is the same word there for persecutor. That sounds weird, doesn't it? So, so what he's saying here is that the same energy I once put into persecuting Christians, I now put into proclaiming and living for Christ. So figuratively, it is one who is running with all the speed and strength they have to reach the goal. So let me ask you this question. Would your spiritual life be any different if you put as much energy into it as you do? Your education, your career, your home, your toys, your sports, your hobbies, your shopping, your food and drink, your binging on TV shows or movies, your social media? I bet it would. I bet it would really, really be different if you put that energy into your walk and pursuit of Christ. And so this holy ambition, here's your next thought on your notes, next fill in the blank. It is a picture of the future that produces passion. That's called vision. 
That's how you define vision. It tells us in Proverbs 29, 18, without vision, the people do what? People perish. Maybe you're not familiar with that verse. Without vision, the people perish. They cast off restraint. They have no sense of purpose and direction. And he goes on, he says, blessed, but blessed is he who keeps God's word. So God's word is what gives us vision and direction. And so you need to have vision in your life as it relates to your marriage, to your health, to, to your spiritual life, to the raising of your kids, picture of the future that produces passion. Where are you, where are you headed with all the different aspects of your life. But the most important thing is your relationship with Christ. That's the one thing. Listen to what Paul says in verse 12. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I know that Christ has made me his own. Based on this verse, I know that Christ has made me his own when when his intensity for me creates intensity within me for him. I love him because he first loved me, 1 John 4, 19. And so here's the vision that I've, I've had for my own life I, I, I would like for you to, to grasp. Those who know Christ never grow bored. Why is that? Because there is always more of Christ to know, more adventure to be pursued, and greater pleasure to be experienced. Listen to this uh, quote from a guy by the name of George Mueller. George Mueller, who immersed himself in the care of thousands of orphans in the 1800s, suffered from bad health and the weight of stressful responsibilities. George Mueller couldn't eliminate stress or occasional bad health, so what was his solution? This is what he wrote. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day, so here's the one thing. Let me read that again. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to meditation on it. Why? So that it would stir his satisfaction in Christ. That's, that's the one thing. So do you have that vision, picture of the future that produces passion? Oh, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings so that I might be like him in his death so that I might attend attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's the heart cry of Paul. That should be the heart cry of every one of us. So it is a picture of the future that produces passion. Here it's also, it is giving maximum effort to know Christ, become like Christ, suffer for Christ, and be with Christ for eternity. He says, straining forward to what is ahead Straining forward to what is ahead. Once again, verses 10 and 11 is what he's straining forward to what is ahead. Now, that word straining is an interesting word. It means to stretch out to the goal. 
So I love, uh, I, I love watching track and field Olympics. I'm bummed out the Olympics aren't happening this year, but they're going to have it next year. But I love the, more of the middle distance events. But what, what happens when you see a close race as they come to the, the tape? What do they typically do? They lean in. They strain to reach the goal. That's the idea of straining. That's exactly what he's saying. Straining to what is ahead. And so this idea of giving maximum effort to know Christ, become like Christ, suffer for Christ, and be with Christ for all eternity, straining forward to what is ahead. Now let me talk a little bit about exhaustion, okay? There is... There is an exhaustion that goes much deeper than physical that all the vacations in the world cannot cure. Even the best night of sleep cannot cure. There's, a, there's an exhaustion. In fact, I've done this many times. I've gone on vacation and come back, and I'm just as exhausted. Any, anybody there? Show of hands. So, so what we're talking about here is that all the good nights of sleep and even vacations cannot cure in a, a soul exhaustion. So that's part of this. We need to understand what that means. Much of our exhaustion is from our failure to rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Let me explain what I mean by that. The cure to our exhaustion is to exhaust ourselves in the pursuit of our, greatest de- deep, our deepest gra- uh, satisfaction in Christ. Hebrews 9 through 11 is interesting. I've got that on your notes. You can study that this next week as you're going through the growing notes. But it basically says strive... It almost sounds like a contradiction. Strive, strain, work hard to enter the rest God has for you in Christ. What? Yes, work hard to enter that rest that he offers you. Now, the reason we run ourselves ragged, workaholism, can't say no, OCD, perfectionism, drivenness, imbalances, no boundaries, no margin, is because we're not keeping ourselves deeply satisfied in Christ through spiritual disciplines. Let me explain that. We find ourselves, I find myself working for my justification rather than from my justification. The strain of overwork is an attempt to justify ourselves to gain the money or the status or the reputation we think we have to have. When I rest in my justification, my position of righteousness in Christ, it will give me boundaries and margin and and soul rest. We desperately need deep rest in Christ's finished work for our salvation. Listen to me. Your heart will forever, forever be restless until you find your rest in him. That's why Jesus said, Matthew 11, come unto me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's rest in Christ Here's the last one of this, of this section. Holy ambition is evidence of maturity and a building on what you have already gained. 
verses 15 through 16, let those of us who are mature think this way. So he's just saying, hey, this is the attitude of a mature believer. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. In other words, you should be making progress. I was uh, watching my son uh, playing basketball a number of years ago, my middle son, and it was uh, Northwest Christian was beating their rivals, Phoenix Christian, by 10 points, and then the coach called a play of almost kind of like having them, since they're ahead, just to kind of do the uh, Harlem Globetrotter routine of just throwing the ball around and keeping the ball moving without actually scoring, and basically they were sitting on their lead. And little by little, the other team got back into the game, came up and nearly uh, beat them. But they were able to pull it off in a, in a panic at the very end. And so here's the analogy, and this is how it works in our life. Don't sit on your lead. Don't lose what you've already gained. Build on that and keep progressing. Because you will lose what you've gained if you're not continuing to progress, and that's the attitude of a mature Christian is what he's saying here. And so, holy ambition is, a, is really vision, it's maximum effort with this deep satisfaction in Christ and it's evidence of maturity, it's building on what you've already gained. So holy discontent plus holy ambition leads to a holy life that finishes strong. It's based on verses 17 through 21 of our text. So how important is holiness? Is that pretty important to God? Yeah, absolutely. It says here, God says he is holy and therefore he wants us to be holy. Be holy because I am holy, 1 Peter 1.16. Hebrews 12.14 says without holiness no one will see the Lord. So he's talking about both positional and practical holiness. Positional holiness, imputed holiness, or, or justification, or righteousness, and also imparted righteousness, or, or, or also called sanctification. He wants us to, to have both of those. And in fact, it's our positional righteousness that helps us with the practical righteousness. As I've said, if you're struggling practically to live a life that honors Christ, you need to get back to the positional righteousness. You need to get back to that because there's something you're missing in what you have in Christ. And so what is holiness? If someone were to ask you, what does that mean to be holy? Well, here's a couple definitions that I've, I've used through the years that's been really helpful for me. Holiness is being wholly devoted to God. Holy meaning W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, your whole life given to God, lived for God. Fully devoted follower of Christ, wholly devoted to God, every area of your life. Here's another definition. Holiness is being so happy in God that sin loses its appeal. I mean, that's what I want for my life. That's what I want for my kids' and my grandkids' lives also. I want them to be so happy in God that sin loses its appeal. Because, because the rationale would be, why would I want to chase that when I have him and all that I have in him? That's holiness. There is nothing boring about being with Christ and nothing boring about being like Christ, which is holiness. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. 
when one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. So three things under this heading of what that looks like. This is where we'll wrap things up. This is a holy life that finishes strong. Follow godly examples. Follow godly examples. Verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Uh, my wife and I have been kind of hooked on a series. It's a, uh, it's a drama documentary, and it's called Alone. Anybody familiar with that, watching that series? <laughs> Not very many people in here, but there were a few more last night. But alone, what they do is they take 10 people, and they put them out into the wilderness, and they have to survive. And whoever survives the longest in the wilderness wins half a million dollars. And it's, it's a fascinating because the psychology and all that's going on and, and, and along, you know, being alone besides water, food, shelter, and dealing with predators in some of the environments that they're in, their biggest problem that I've seen come up time and time again is their loneliness. And most of them... There's really no indication in most of their lives that they really worship God that created. They're really worshiping creation. You can see that in that. And I'm always thinking, come on, can't you see that? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Look around. This, is, this just didn't happen. I mean, and, and, and your need to want to connect with others, don't you realize you were created by a relational God and it's not good for man to be alone? Genesis 2.18 those are just indicators to draw our hearts to God. But their loneliness, and most of them are doing really well, but they just quit. They tap out because of the loneliness. They can't deal with it anymore. And you're going to tap out because of loneliness if you don't have people in your life encouraging you, supporting you, and you have good role models that you are following. We call them life groups here. You need to be connected, and you don't even have to be a part of a life group. You can start your own group. Get together with just a few Christians. Study God's word together. Hold each other accountable. My wife and I do this even in our own lives. I, you can do this in your home with your family or with friends or, or any number of ways. But do that. You need that. Follow godly examples. Flee enemies. That's the next one. Verse 18, from many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their God is their belly? Yeah, follow your heart. That's our culture. And they glory in their shame. What is that? They boast in their sin. With minds set on earthly things. They're very secular. Nowism. Living for now. Here's my warning, stay away from TV, social media, movies, music, friends that diminish your appetite for Christ. Otherwise, you will not finish strong. So follow godly examples, flee from enemies. Number three, focus on expectations, verses 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is about hope, is what he's talking about here. Focus on expectations. Hope is not wishful thinking. It's confident, joyful expectation. 
You can live 40 days without food, just a few days without water, four to six minutes without oxygen, but not a single second without hope. We are unavoidably hope-based creatures. How you live in the present is inevitably shaped by what you believe about your future. That's why it tells us in Romans 15.3, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And if you don't have hope, you're going to tap out and you're not going to finish strong. As most of you know that our, our earthly dads shape and influence our concept of our heavenly dad. My, my dad passed away just a little bit over a year and a half ago. I'll never forget this. I was running in a high school track meet, Alhambra High. Eight schools were competing. The stands were packed with fans. I was a sophomore running varsity in the 800-meter race, two laps around the track. My coach had his sons on the team along with his favorites that he showed special attention to. I was not one of them. I felt pretty much on my own. I was certainly the underdog in the race. So on my first lap around the track, I'll never forget it as long as I live. I could hear my dad's deep, booming voice cheering me on above all the noise coming from the stands. It so energized me. And so that was the first lap. I got one more lap to go. And as I'm crossing in front of the stands, I hear my dad cheering me on. And it so energized me that on that last lap, I passed one guy after another guy after another guy. And I finished a very close second place, almost winning the race. I shocked my coach. He was shocked. I will never, I will forever, I will forever remember my dad cheering me on and therefore helping me to see and experience by grace through faith in Christ my true and better father in heaven cheering me on daily in life's race with these words. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do you hear that? Do you hear your father as he speaks those words? That's, that's our positional righteousness. You're not going to be able to go on if you're not hearing that. If that's not ringing in your heart and your soul, that's ours through Christ Jesus. Have you felt like giving up lately? Galatians 6, 9. Do not grow weary in well-doing because in due season you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Listen to me. Don't give up. Don't give up. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So Father God, as it says in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, help us to lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles us and let us run the race set before us with perseverance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross in our place for our sins, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We ask that you would stir up in us a holy discontent 
and a holy ambition that leads us to a holy life of perseverance to the end for our joy and your glory in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys. God bless you.